0: Oh, well, welcome to First Move and a busy hour coming up as always, including British Prime Minister Sunak minding his first PMQs. A spirited debate will bring you the news. The UK budget has been delayed. At least that buys time for appropriate reviews. And in techland, Alphabet and Microsoft triggering investor blues. However, a rare Wall Street IPO is driverless car firm Mobileye debuts. For global stocks, though, the bulls unable to light an investment fuse. I'm done. Microsoft and Google's parent company, Alphabet, are lagging post results, as you can see there. The chips are down also for semiconductor maker Texas Instruments, too. It's seeing weaker demand from firms across the economic spectrum. All of these things, warnings, warning sign of economic slowdown. As such, the Nasdaq set to fall for the first time in four sessions. Europe struggling, too, with the UK, as you can see there. The underperformer down some half-tenths five-tenths of 1% as investors grapple with what the new Prime Minister can do to help the broader economy. Chancellor Jeremy Hunt now delaying, as I mentioned, his keenly awaited budget proposal until mid-November. Halloween arguably never really felt like the right day. Heineken, in the meantime, shares today also reflecting some of those broader macro fears. Call it a tipple topple. The beer maker over a barrel as sales soften shares as you can see, down some 8.3%. However, a better earnings picture from restaurant chain Chipotle. It's continued to pass on rising input costs over to consumers. We'll be hearing from the company's CFO later on in the show. Also of note today, Asia on the ascent. Green arrows across the board for stock markets there as the Bank of Japan announces fresh action to bring down rising bond yields ahead of its policy meeting this Friday. All this amid separate efforts to prop up the yen, the Japanese currency, and China's central bank promising fresh support measures, too. Tech investors needing support, perhaps some emotional support after earnings so far this quarter. And Rahel Solomon joins us now to go through it. Rahel, great to have you with us. Alphabet It's actually beginning a worrying week, I think, for some of these Mm. uh, bigger tech companies. Disappointing on the advertising spend, a dramatic slowing in revenue and actually, I think, a revenue decline at YouTube. Walk us through these numbers and what they're doing to mitigate
1: well, Julie, I think emotional support will be needed certainly after these reports, but maybe even beyond this week. So, what we learned in Alphabet's report was quite simply disappointing to investors, as you pointed out. It was a miss on the top and the bottom lines for revenue and earnings. A few things are happening here, Julie. You have some macro headwinds in terms of uh, a pullback in digital ad spend. We can pull up this slide for you and just show uh, the company saying that it is seeing a pullback in advertising in certain industries like insurance, loans, and mortgages. And of course, Julia, we know here in the U.S. what's happening in the U.S. mortgage market. Demand has really fallen off a cliff as interest rates for a mortgage remain high and home prices remain stubbornly high. So you're seeing that reflected in hurting some of the digital ad spend, but also the stunning dominance of players like TikTok. That is hurting players like Alphabet. And then as you pointed out, we're seeing something that we really haven't seen in quite some time in YouTube. Ad revenue actually fell, or revenue rather, fell for YouTube about 2%. That is something, Julia, we have not not seen since Alphabet began separating YouTube's revenue. So that was certainly something that surprised investors to the downside. One analyst putting it this way, of course, Alphabet Google best in class in the digital ad spend industry. One analyst saying when Google stumbles, it is a bad omen for digital advertising at large. That comment coming from Evelyn Mitchell. Uh, speaking of digital ad spend, Julia, we're going to learn a lot more when we hear from Meta after the bell today, but uh, more emotional support perhaps needed after these warnings from Alphabet.
0: Yeah, hand-holding. And it was interesting to see the CEO saying, look, we can be more efficient. Mm -hmm. He wants to make the company 20%, I believe, more efficient. It was interesting to look at the... Their um, employee growth, the total full-time worker headcount, 186,779. That's up from just over 150,000 last year. And he talked about slowing that employee growth. So not cutting jobs, just slowing the growth. Interesting. It's sort of cautious, but we've got to um, have a little bit of perspective on this as well. What about Microsoft? Microsoft.
1: I think that's a great point, right? Not cutting jobs, but saying that they're going to slow on their hiring. So that, too, a bit of a warning. Microsoft's earnings were a bit of a mixed bag, right? I mean, revenue actually grew 11 percent, and that was better than expected. But net income fell 14 percent. That, too, however, was better than expected. So in the Microsoft space, the company reporting its cloud business, Azure, actually saw growth of 35 percent although that is slower and lower than analysts were expecting. And this appears, Julia, to also be hitting Amazon stock. Of course, you think Amazon, you think it's AWS cloud business. And that stock also being hit a bit hard this morning uh, on, on the back of these results. So certainly lots of headwinds for these tech companies to sort of wade through and to sort of grapple with and lots of pain being felt uh, among investors across the industry.
0: how great to have you with us. Thank you so much for that. Okay, to London now, and the new UK Prime Minister laying out his economic goals before lawmakers.
2: Prime Minister,
0: welcome. Rishi Zunak was greeted with cheers as he took his first session of Prime Minister's Questions, or PMQs. He told MPs stability and responsibility at the forefront of his mission for the economy. And he defended the actions, though, of his predecessors. Welcome, Mr. Speaker,
3: uh, my record is clear. When times are difficult in this country, I will always protect the most vulnerable. That is the value of our compassionate party. We did it in Covid and we will do that again.
0: Okay, let's get more now from Bianca Nabilo in London. Bianca, you and I were talking about this yesterday. Even more confidence, I think. Command of the details. A pretty
4: impressive performance, I call it. What do you make of what we saw today? hugely impressive trajectory. Mm. Julie, you and I over the last few days have spoken about that first speech he gave, which was quite nervous, definitely not sure-footed at CCHQ. Then behind the podium yesterday when he was officially Prime Minister, it was businesslike, but it was more statesmanly and serious. And then today we saw a far more confident performance. Some smiles as well. Obviously, Sunak hadn't thought that was appropriate until this point because he wanted to convey the severity of the challenges that lay ahead. What we also witnessed is that when Sunak is dealing with detail and dealing with things he can research and brief himself on, he is far more comfortable than if he's, for example, having a spontaneous face-to-face interview where he's being asked questions about his personal life and his background. This is where he shines. And the key element here was the cheers from the back benches. They were very pleased with his performance, his sure-footedness, his confidence, how, how he was sharp in his responses, and the general mood as well, certainly at the beginning, was more celebratory. We had the leader of the opposition, Keir Starmer, and the leader of the SNP, in Blackford and Westminster, saying that they were really proud and celebrating the fact that Rishi Sunak was the country's first prime minister of Asian heritage. But Starmer didn't waste any time, and he started twisting the knife on Sunak about his reappointment of Suella Braverman, as you know, a very controversial move in his new composition of Cabinet to bring her back just six days after she was sacked for a security breach, Julia.
0: Mm. I was going to ask you uh, about the delay for the fiscal plan, of course, into November Mm. beyond Halloween and the 31st of October, but we've uh, run out of time. I'm sure we will come back to this at a separate point, Bianca, but it does at least give them time now to get this budget plan, this autumn statement reviewed by the uh, Mm. appropriate institutions and bodies, which I think is key here too. But a command performance, first PMQs. Bianca, great to have you with us. Thank you. Okay, to Ukraine now. A Russian missile struck a gas station in the central city of Dnipro Ukrainian officials say two people died in the attack, including a pregnant woman. Meanwhile, Russia continues to claim that Ukraine is preparing to use a so-called dirty bomb, prompting President Biden to issue a stern warning.
3: Let me just say, Russia would be making an incredibly serious mistake if we're to use a tactical nuclear weapon. I'm not guaranteeing you that it's a false flag operation yet don't know but uh, it would be a serious serious mistake
0: Nick Robertson joins us now Nick what do you make of this we were discussing yesterday is it too alarmist to use the word alarm clear alarm in in western governments about the risk of escalation and and the use of a so-called dirty bomb
5: There is a concern about a risk of escalation from the Russian side. There isn't concern about Ukraine using a dirty bomb. Ukraine doesn't have a dirty bomb. It says, in fact, I sat down with their military intelligence chief, General Budanov, just a couple of hours ago. And that was my first question for him. Russia accuses Ukraine of having a dirty bomb. Do you have a dirty bomb? Are you preparing a dirty bomb? This is a question that became something of a joke, and my answer is direct. We are not getting prepared. We are not working on a dirty bomb. Ukraine has invited the International Atomic Energy Agency inspectors to come here. When are they due to arrive? Where will they go? And when do you expect their results? We're absolutely supporting the visit of the IAEA mission, and we are waiting for them. We're waiting for them to visit all nuclear facilities. And Russia has identified two sites, a science academy here in Kiev and a mining facility in the centre of Ukraine. How important is it to you that the IAEA inspectors very quickly clear Ukraine, of all these baseless Russian allegations. The sooner they come, the better the things will, will be. And of course the interview went on longer and one of the interesting details that came out, he does not believe, and he is leading the military intelligence here in Ukraine, he does not believe President Putin actually wants to have a nuclear escalation. He thinks that what President Putin is trying to do right now is posture to try to get into peace talks which of course Ukraine is not prepared to do, he said, until Russia pulls back to the 1991 lines, that's the pre-2014 invasion lines. And I think one other important detail that that came out there and you heard him reference it on that point about the importance of the IAEA inspectors coming and going to all nuclear facilities. He particularly wants them to get full access to, to where Russia controls the Zaporizhia nuclear power station, Ukraine's power station, of course, that, you, that Russia now controls because they're concerned about the activities of Russian military forces around some of the spent nuclear fuel rods there and the dangers that could imply for the area.
0: Nick Robertson, great to have you with us, as always. Thank you. Okay, crisis avoided for now. After months of warnings that the European Union could face an energy crisis this winter, it now looks like the bloc has enough gas in storage to make it through. Anna Stewart joins us now with more on this. Let's be specific. It feels like a combination of luck and management, self-rationing from consumers in Europe. Fingers crossed that the weather stays mild. And the result is that we've seen spot gas prices, so current gas prices, coming down. So some of the concern is is perhaps filtering out of the market. It's clearly more complicated, but it's good news.
6: Yeah, good news in the middle of a full-blown energy crisis. It's certainly not what anyone was necessarily expecting. Uh, And you can see with the gas futures, the Dutch is the benchmark here in Europe. They dropped to a level we haven't actually seen since Russia started uh, reducing outflows of gas through Nord Stream. Uh, And on Monday, Dutch spot prices for next hour delivery actually turned negative. So there is a lot to celebrate here. Europe has worked really hard to procure LNG from other suppliers. Um, It's done very well in that sense. Uh, Storage facilities are well above target. They wanted them to be 80% full by November. They're well over 90% at this moment. And actually last week, the EU Commission president said the EU has already cut more than two thirds of the Russian gas supply they used to rely on just only last year. So that's above their target. I would argue, have they actually been able to cut it themselves or did Russia simply stop? sending it gas. Uh, And another part of the good news, as you say, is also the weather, unseasonably warm weather here in Europe, which means demand is a lot lower than you'd expect. So that's kind of, I'd say, where the good news ends.
0: I was about to say, I think government's also been quite tight lipped about this because the danger of perhaps in that prices is coming down, at least in the short term, is that people decide, OK, well, we've got storage. Prices are coming down. Perhaps I'll use a bit more. And it, and it reverses the situation we're in. You know, when I look at the futures curve and what prices say further out, um, the news is less good.
6: Yeah, and the fact that Europe has more gas than it knows what to do with is actually a big problem. It doesn't have enough in terms of LNG terminals, in terms of regasification facilities. It doesn't have enough storage facilities. They're so full, perhaps, because they don't have enough to see them beyond this winter, or at least if winter was really cold, they could still actually be in a bit of a pickle. Right now, according to a data firm called Videxa, um around 35 LNG vessels are just floating around Europe or on their way to Europe at very slow speeds because right now they can't really dock because Europe doesn't know what to do with it. LNG prices are expected to rise as much as 60 percent by December. So these LNG uh, vessels will be floating around until then. And that is why EU talks on their so-called energy union are so critical. They've done a lot in terms of reducing demand and increasing storage and getting more LNG orders in. But they've got some way to go. And one of the big thorny issues they're talking about at the moment is... um, capping the price of gas, whether it should happen, how it should work, and how they can ensure that it doesn't really backfire in terms of their energy supplies.
0: Mm. Anna Stewart, thank you so much for that. We shall see. Okay, straight ahead. Rolling blackouts in Ukraine, the country faces a dark winter as Russia targets their attacks on power distribution. I speak with the CEO of the country's largest private energy company about the help needed to fix critical energy networks. Plus, Chippy for Chipotle, a robotic assistant getting a test run. Chipotle's CFO joins us later to discuss tortilla tech and earnings after the break. Welcome back to First Move. A bitter winter is approaching in Ukraine and the war has taken a devastating toll on the energy industry. Russian forces have bombarded electricity and heating networks. The result, rolling power cuts, water pumping stations disabled and widespread internet outages. President Zelensky says more than a third of the energy sector has been destroyed or incapacitated, and experts in Kyiv say Russia is aiming to plunge the country into complete darkness. DTEC, the largest private energy company, is currently providing 20% of Ukraine's electricity, but it says it needs help to fix and protect its facilities as the onslaught continues. And joining us now is Maxim Timchenko. He is the CEO of DTEC. Maxim, great to have you on the show once again. I read your October update, good morning, and you said, and it's a very important point that you made, that the biggest cost here is not in terms of energy loss or or financial cost, it's in human loss, and I know that you've lost, I believe, 95 individual employees and you still have 15 people missing. I mean, that's heartbreaking for the families involved, for all of you in the country and of course the, the business. Just talk me through that.
7: It's the highest possible price we pay this war. Just since tenth of October, when massive attacks of energy, energy facilities started by Russians, we uh, have ten people injured and one one was killed. And, and basically, Putin and Russia declared energy war uh, on Europe, on Ukraine many years ago by cutting gas supply, building building gas pipelines to bypass Ukraine, and now this war transform into completely different form its physical destruction of our critical infrastructure since 10th of october uh, more missiles and drones were used to attack critical infrastructure than military facilities this is the face of russia so they they create humanitarian disaster in the middle of europe this is reality this is where where we are at the moment but we are keep fighting
0: I, mean, I mentioned in the introduction, too, that, that you're currently providing around 20 percent of the electricity f- for Ukraine. Talk to me about those specific drone and missile attacks that the countries face since October the 10th. How much capacity have you lost? And just give us a sense of your ability and how quickly you can repair that or get that back up and running.
7: Today, we uh, operate six Power stations producing even today even more than 20% of electricity. Five of these stations were attacked, so we we did everything possible to bring them back, and uh, four of them already back to to the grid. But it's not only us; it's uh, energy system of Ukraine. The whole system were, were attacked, and today we cannot transmit about 25 of electricity needed to 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 consumers. This is the uh, this is the situation. That's why. We have to go to roll on black hours over all regions of Ukraine. And this situation is, is uh, very much critical today. What we what we need is equipment to replace damaged equipment and we try to find everywhere in Ukraine and also appeal uh, appealing to our partners to, to bring as as probably you know, when war started our military officers and, and our president was saying, give us equipment and we will we will fight. Now This is what we ask as as, uh, energy company, as power engineers, help us with equipment, give us equipment equipment, and we will keep fighting, bringing back electricity, restoring our power stations.
0: Maxim, can you tell me who you're talking to? Are either other companies or or other nation states stepping up and providing this? I mean, you're talking, I'm assuming, about basic electrical equipment needed to, to replace some of the damaged pieces and parts of the infrastructure.
7: So we do everything possible in, in terms of uh, contacting uh, our colleagues from other energy companies who right. uh, basically operate coal-fired power stations. We speak with vendors, suppliers of, of key equipment, the company like Siemens, ABB, uh, who we have long-term history relationship. We speak to to other governments and and uh, humanitarian organizations so that they help us to to build this logistics. So this is the critical point for Ukraine to ask uh, ask for this help from the world because if we lose this energy war we do not know consequences for the whole country
0: I want to come back on that that bigger point about what Russia is trying to achieve here and how you you better protect the country. But I know you've also said you're trying to erect structures around transformers, around some of the grids, the electrical grids as well, to try and protect them from drone or missile attacks. How much progress are you making there? And is that even feasible? Is it even possible to to protect against those kind of attacks and this kind of technology?
7: Uh, to, be, to be honest with you, we are very much dependent on our air defense forces. So okay. we, work, we work very very close to, to, uh, to our uh, forces and we hope that they can protect us. But also we, we build uh, constructions, uh, concrete blocks, everything possible to, to protect our equipment on open air. But if it's direct heat, there is no chance that all, all this construction can help us. We rely on, on air defense, and I hope that, that our partners will hear us that we need much more today to to protect uh, critical infrastructure.
0: Maxim, you touched on it earlier. Um, this is bad enough at this point in time, but if this continues and the winter weather progresses, it's going to be even more devastating. Is that what you expect Russia to do, to continue to target critical infrastructure like power and energy services in the country and for those that are saying they actually are aiming for, for a complete blackout in the country, do you think that's what the intention is?
7: I, I'm I'm confident what what other intention can be from, from terrorist country. So it's it's obvious for the whole civilized world that 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 Russia is terrorist country and they use method of terrorism. So this is their intention, to to cut electricity supply from our people so that they, they will be freezing, so that they create humanitarian uh, crisis which, which will touch millions of people. Because people will have no choice. Uh, either uh, go to the West and have re- refugee crisis, or or basically there is no other choice if we, if we completely cut off, off electricity supply. And, and hit during during the winter.
0: How do you expect Ukrainian people to react in that kind of situation? And as you pointed out, for those in the West that perhaps could do more, we are talking about a even wider-scale refugee crisis potentially. That needs to be recognized.
7: It is, it, is, uh, it is something that should be a reality in eyes for those who are helping us. And that... Uh, Basically, the whole world sees this uh, this uh, pictures of attack in the center of Kiev on 10th of October but uh, people still in Kiev we we are still working uh, people spend half of their day in bomb, bomb shelters they they cut off electricity for four five even ten hours during the day but we are staying and fighting and this is this is uh, something that make ukrainian special special nation in this in this fight uh, it's difficult to predict how situation will be developing we still we still uh hope that we can cope with all these challenges even today when we have 25 30 percent of electricity shortage in the country we we develop different different uh, plans how to develop uh local uh power sources how to find technological Uh, solution of the situation depending on the regions. So what I can say, we have no choice, we'll keep fighting, and eventually we will win.
0: But to your point too, in the interim, you need critical help in repairing some of the damaged infrastructure. And we emphasize that call that that's what you're asking for here and requiring. Maxim, I just want to get your view on one other story that, that we continue to cover. Russia has suggested that they're concerned that Ukraine is preparing some kind of dirty bomb. And obviously, the Ukrainian government have said this is ridiculous. Western governments, the United States, the UK have come forward and have have obviously talked to the Russian government and and the fears are that this is some kind of false flag operation by Russia to to escalate this war. Maxim, how concerned are you of some kind of nuclear escalation in Ukraine?
7: Uh, So I think that it's obvious that Russians cannot win on battlefield. And they use different methods. So they attack civilians, they attack civilian infrastructure, they cut heat from from children and from families. This is the way how they fight. And all these uh, nonsense ideas about dirty bomb or something, that's just the face of Russians. They are lying. They are lying for, for, for years. And uh, basically, of course, uh, our officials uh, responded, uh, Ukraine is ready for any any uh, kind of inspection and so it's difficult to, to comment what 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 next Russian can can create in their, in their minds uh, accusing UK- Ukraine is something that never never happened. So of course we cannot exclude any any nuclear risk and attack from Russians after what they've done since February. But uh, as I said, we will we'll keep fighting. We will we'll do everything possible to get prepared for the worst case scenario.
0: Maxim, good to speak to you. Thank you so much for your time today. I know you and your people are incredibly busy and our hearts are with those that are missing and also the families of those whose people and, and family members have been lost. Thank you, sir. Stay safe. The CEO there of DTEC. We'll be back after this. Stay with us. Back about to First Move, and we're looking at a weaker Wednesday on tap for US stocks. The Nasdaq and the S&P 500 falling for the first time this week, and all because tech is not up to spec. Disappointing results from both Microsoft and Google parent firm Alphabet, pressuring the entire tech market. A cloudy outlook for Microsoft's cloud is triggering weakness for Amazon shares too, whose recent growth has also been driven by strength, particularly in that space. Shares of all three firms, Microsoft, Alphabet and Amazon, As you can see, sharply lower in early trade this morning. So they're the ones to keep an eye on. And the tech earnings torrent does not end there. Meta? a.k.a. Facebook reports after the closing bell today. Remember, it's exposed to the same advertising sales pressures that we're seeing impacting Google. So that's what we'll be looking for when those earnings hit later. Now on to a burrito bonanza. Restaurant chain Chipotle posting better than expected third quarter numbers, revenues jumping 14%, with customers undeterred by average price hikes of 13% over the past year as the firm continues to pass on higher costs to consumers chipotle owns and operates all of its nearly 3100 restaurants from the united states and canada to the uk germany and france it also operates a 50 million dollar venture fund investing in new technologies including automated production and plant-based meat and joining us now chipotle cfo jack hartung Jack, great to have you with us once again, and congratulations on another strong quarter. What you've talked to us about in the past, this sort of distance between you and competitors that allows you to pass on some of these costs, remains key.
8: Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, Julia, that same gap exists today. You know, we talk about the fact that our chicken burrito, which is what more than half of our customers get, they either get a chicken bowl or a chicken burrito, um, still costs a little less than $9 on average. And when you compare That meal to any other competitor in the fast casual realm, especially somebody that has some of the food ethos and the real cooking that we have. You're talking about entree prices for a chicken entree in the 11, 12, sometimes 13 dollar range. So we still, even though we've had to, uh, you know, defend uh, our business, you know, based on the inflation that we've seen, we still have a large gap to other competitors in the industry.
0: And that makes sense. I mean, I look at the whole range of inputs that you're talking about where you're seeing these price pressures, dairy, tortillas, avocados, it's packaging, it's it's labor too. I feel like forecasting to some degree is a fool's errand even now. But is there any sense that any of that really is slowing? What can you tell us about sort of current quarter and pushing into next year?
8: Yeah, you know, the visibility isn't great just because mm. of what we've gone through in the last year or a couple of years. Um, but it does seem like things are starting to stabilize a bit. We've got a few things that are pressure on the upside, like beef looks like it's still going to be a little upside pressure, our cooking oils uh, as well, and, uh, and tortillas. But on the other side, it looks like there's a, an opportunity for things like you know dairy and some of our packaging to ease a little bit into next year. So it seems like it's trying to ease into kind of more of a normal pattern. So, But we'll have to let it play out because that, certainly predicting what happened in the last Several quarters has been very difficult with the supply chain challenges we've seen.
0: Even with the success that, that you're proving to have, I remember you saying it's a it's a wealthier customer that's continuing to come and showing such resilience in terms of what we're seeing for broader consumption, never mind for for your product and the less wealthier perhaps that are sort of reigning in their spending to some degree. How has that changed quarter over quarter as well? Are you seeing more of that, uh, sort of stable levels of engagement? I'm just trying to get a sense of, um, I guess, degree of slowing, even underlying the strength of your business.
8: Yeah, we saw another quarter, very similar to what we saw in the second quarter uh, where our higher income consumers, those who are making over 150,000 or so, they're coming more often. It's those consumers in the under 70 and the between 70 and call it 150,000. Those are the ones that seem to be a little bit more discerning. Those are the ones that seem to be visiting less often. And it's a similar pattern that we see in retail in general and other restaurants. That is the consumer that with very high prices of gasoline and vacations and restaurants and you know grocery, grocery inflation has been high as well. Those are the consumers that seem to be pulling back a little bit.
0: The other thing that is driving growth is that you continue to open new stores, which I think is also a sign of uh, ongoing confidence, irrespective of what we're seeing in terms of some of the, the broader challenges. Um, I see digital now is 37, just over 37% of revenue. And of course, that's come down as people grow in confidence and get back out there and visit restaurants, which which is a good thing. I guess it also helps the bottom line because you're not paying the sort of third party delivery fees and, and the commissions for that. Jack, do you, do you worry about that decline or you think that's sort of a, a sort of happy balance to find between those that are coming in store and spending and those that are doing it digitally?
8: No, I think, Julia, I think that's just kind of a normal post-pandemic yeah. um, transition where people were really, frankly, stuck in their homes. They had no choice but to either pull up and and grab your food curbside or through, a, in our case, a Chipotle, lane, or have their food delivered. And now that people are vaccinated, they feel more comfortable, uh, going out and about they want to be outside they want to you know dine at a restaurant even if they're dining somewhere else you know when the weather's good they may come to the restaurant pick up their food and then eat outside in one of our patios and so i, I think it's normal activity the thing though that we're doubling down on with our new store of growth is that 80 percent of our new restaurants do have the chipotle and while digital overall is in that 37 38 percent range When we open up a restaurant with a Chipotle, it's more like 50%. And so the consumers love not just the convenience of a Chipotle, but also the value as well, because you're not paying somebody to bring the food to your house. And it's an easy drive up to our, uh, you know, our Chipotle. We agree on what time your food is going to be ready. So your food's ready to go when you drive up, you grab your food and off you go.
0: I want to talk about Chippy as well, your autonomous kitchen assistant made by Miso Robotics that's going to make and season tortilla chips with salt and lime. Because as you expand these stores, the use of, sort of labor-saving technologies, I'm assuming, is going to significantly grow, too, which is part of the the venture fund. Talk to me about Chippy and how excited you are. I know this is sort of a California thing for now, but growth potential? Yeah. yeah. <laughs>
8: Yeah, listen, we're very excited about it. I I mean, we have to be, you know, not get ahead of ourselves. It's in one restaurant right now. We've been doing more of an ops test. So it's in a restaurant, but we've been testing it ourselves. Just this week, we are having some customers on a very controlled basis try the chips and make sure that they love it, that it's got the right lime, the right salt, and the right texture. Um, And then soon after, within the next few weeks, we hope that we'll start serving customers along the line. But we're very excited about it because, listen, the, the, the chip's... Uh, making of the chips in the morning is not something our crews love to do. It's very hot over the fryer. Um, it's a little bit, you know, messy. I mean, when you're dealing with a cooking oil, it can be a little bit messy. Um, and so if this is something we can basically take from our crew so they can focus on other thing, whether it's making guacamole or serving the customer, we think this is a win-win for our customers, for our business and for our crews.
0: Yeah, that's absolutely going to be my next question. Was hang on a second, what about the workers? But I like the idea of substituting away from something that they simply don't enjoy doing anyway. So that if they can be more efficient doing other things, it's a good thing. Um, specifically, around fifteen percent of your or your operations or your businesses are in California, and and you've also talked about the prospect of potential legislation there to to raise the minimum wage quite significantly. I mean, we're talking twenty one to twenty two dollars an hour. It's it's currently fourteen dollars, I believe, but you pay significantly more than that already. Jack, if that legislation was enacted, what would that mean for your business in terms of hiring, in terms of, of, of growing, of, of opening st- new stores? I mean, that would be a material increase in, in wages and labor costs.
8: Yeah, you know, a- across the country, we pay an average rate based on the actual hours work between 16 and $17. We've been a leader in terms of paying wages. We've been a leader in terms of benefits, you know, paying benefits such as educational. So, Um, our employees can get a debt-free degree. So we will pay for the entire degree. We also develop our folks as well. And 90% of our managers come from internal. So if you join Chipotle and you have the desire to learn how to lead people, we'll teach you. If you have a desire to learn how to cook, we'll teach you. If you have a desire to learn how to run a business, we'll teach you how to do that. And whether you stay with Chipotle or not, you have these skills to take wherever you go. Um, Listen, we don't love the legislation. We don't think this is necessary. We don't think a you know, third-party body needs to come in and, you know, legislate what the wages should be. If it happens, we'll be able to, um, I think, withstand that. We have a very strong economic model. It would result in inflation, I think, in all restaurants. I think, Julia, it's also likely to hurt the little guy, even though there's a cutoff of, I think it's over 100 restaurants. The little guys are going to have to compete with talent for the bigger companies like Chipotle um, in terms of wages. So everyone's going to have to pay higher wages. So I think it's going to be probably tougher on little restaurants than it is like a restaurant like Chipotle. Um, we'd rather have this one-to-one relationship in terms of the benefits and the pay with our employees. But um, if the legislation passes, you know, we'll, we'll handle it.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting point as well about your ability to weather this relative to much smaller, smaller, medium-sized businesses um, in the state. Jack, always great to chat to you. Thank you so much for joining us once again this quarter and um, great news once again on the earnings. Jack that, Harting there, the CFO of Chipotle. Thank you. All right, up next, what one of the biggest names in banking sees as one of the biggest challenges at this moment, we hear from the CEO of Standard Chartered about his concerns over the strength of the US dollar. Welcome back to First Move. Global banking giant Standard Chartered has uh, operations all over the world with a particular focus in Asia, Africa and the Middle East. The firm reported a 40% rise in profits in the third quarter as rising interest rates help boost income. Now ahead of those results, Richard Quest caught up with the company's CEO and they spoke about some of the wider challenges, including a strong US dollar. Listen in.
2: You know, the, the biggest impact on us over the past year or so actually has been the lockdown in Hong Kong and the fact that equity markets have been so poor, which has affected our business with affluent investors, right, with, with wealthy individuals. So of course that's down. But other things are up: uh, the, the cross-border trade that we're doing, our risk management in financial markets. Like we report our earnings tomorrow, so I can't give any, any inside scoop, but we had a very good first half of the year. Third quarter has been consistent in terms of, of the, the economic activity and trade activity. So broadly, uh, yeah, we're, we're in super good shape. And then
9: you get the recession that's coming in the developed world. Could now, be. You, could be. Well, well, Oh, come on. It,
2: yeah, it could it's be. It's going to happen. Well, could be.
9: How is that going to influence hit India?
2: It doesn't help at all. Right? But let's keep in mind that where, where we're anchored, which is Africa, Asia, Middle East, we're not going to have a recession. No, but the we're spillover. Have, there will be. Spillover. The whole system's going to come down, yes. for, for sure. It's going to come down. Uh, thankfully, we're starting here with a really strong capital position, lots of cash in the bank, very clean loan portfolio with, with very small credit losses. So even if we have an uptick from here because of a recession, we'll be fine. And In fact, I think the global economy will be fine. We just have to let that rat pass through the snake. You're sounding very, I won't say optimistic, I'd say sanguine. 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 I think we're all prepared for bad times in the next year or two. And I don't want to minimize that because bad times are very bad for the most vulnerable people. So. If you're an emerging markets country that has an external debt problem or, or or trade imbalance life is very tough right now as we've seen in places like sri lanka these are a lot of the markets where we operate how can you help in those places because i was at the imf and world
9: bank and i've been at the wto and essentially they're saying that we learned from the pandemic that the developed world doesn't really help sometimes yeah. they, you know it's every man and woman for themselves in the lifeboats. Yeah. so with the sri lankas and uh, the, 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 the emerging markets yeah, at higher interest rates. It's yeah. going to get worse. It's going to
2: get worse, and the strong dollar. The strong dollar is very, very impactful for, for these countries. I'll say the obvious, which is that the best cure is prevention. So the earlier we can get in and help these countries to get things in balance, the better. But as we sit here right now, it's probably too late to prevent. So we've got to, we've got to come up with, with some different cures.
9: What are the unusual Aspects of the UK financial debacle in the last month, and there have been many. But one of the ones that I'm sure people like you are looking at is how the LDIs from the pension funds, these rather tedious instruments that were been around for decades, that were thought of as being genuine hedges, suddenly appeared to be ticking time bombs.
2: Yeah. What does that tell us? Yeah, it, it tells us that tail risks manifest themselves all the time. And look, I would venture to say every pension fund tested their their liquidity. Do we have access to cash if a certain thing happens? Nobody tested for a full percentage point increase in long-term guilt yields overnight. I don't think anybody thought that that was a realistic possibility. Now we know it is. So the system will recalibrate. Just as the system did after the financial crisis, you get used to these black swan events as they're called. So does this mean now there could be other instruments buried elsewhere that are ticking yeah of course and and uh, the idea that we're done with the black swans forget it there will always be black swans Uh, probably calls for being better capitalized generally having more cash in the bank liquidity in technical terms generally and if you get those things sorted out then you can absorb the black swans Finally, the one thing that everybody says is the banking
9: system is robust. Yeah. In fact, Jamie may say and complain about too high Mm. capital requirements, and Basel III may all be a real pain in the butt for the rest of you in terms of the amount, but having just seen the Bank of England do it, I think
2: I'd be happier with you all lending a little bit less, but having bigger buffers. Well, we're lending a fraction of what we lent pre-2008, so we are much, much, much stronger than we were then. But you know, there's a really interesting question, which is, at what point should the banking system accommodate every risk that could hit us? And at what point do you say, actually, the central bank should step in at some point? Let's think about some of the, the, the horrific acts of war or, or acts of nature. Uh, should banks be, be capitalized to protect against the worst possible scenario? Well, if we are, the economy will grind to a halt. So central banks can manufacture liquidity pretty much for free. And that's what the Bank of England did in, in this LDI crisis. I think that's a, a perfect example of, of where you draw the line and say up to a point, the private sector has to take care of itself. Beyond that point, the central bank can actually
0: smooth things through.
2: And that point will be a movable feast. If you knew what it was in advance, you'd
0: protect against it in advance. It's a great conversation. Okay, still to come here on first move, billionaire status. Nay, the latest financial fallout for Rapper. Yay, stay with CNN. Welcome back to First Move. Corporate America saying nay to yay. Major brands, the latest being Adidas, have cut ties with the rapper who formerly went by Kanye West after he doubled down on anti-Semitic comments he made online. At the same time, Gap and Footlocker have pulled all Yeezy merchandise from their shelves, the fallout causing Forbes to drop yay from its billionaire's list, saying the botched deals now make him worth just, just $400 million. Paula Monica joins us now with more. Paul, great to have you on the show. Um, Christine and I were talking about the the financial value of this contract with Adidas, and Ye had seemed pretty sure that no matter what he said, he wasn't going to lose it. Now the financial consequences, it seems, are becoming clearer.
3: Yeah, they are clear for both Ye and they are clear for Mm -hmm. Adidas as well. This is a company that is obviously a global conglomerate, but they said that they're going to take a hit uh, to the tune of nearly $250 million in the fourth quarter from lost sales as they wind this down. So obviously this is not something that I think Adidas um, you know, made this decision in uh, you know a rash moment. They had to really consider whether or not they should cut ties like many other companies have done and that's something that will be potentially a problem down the road unless they want to find a way to relaunch the uh, Yeezy line, which they seem to be hinting they could do because they claim that they own the uh, the brand rights, not Ye.
0: Oh, that's exactly where I was going to go next because I saw reports on this too. I mean, you will imagine that he believes he owns all the rights to to Yeezy and everything that every product that comes from it, but. Not necessarily the case.
3: Yeah, I think it's going to be difficult for Adidas, though. I mean, this has been a very successful product launch for them and brand. But to give credit to Yeah, he obviously had a lot to do with the creative beyond, behind this line of products. And you have to wonder, without him, can Adidas really say that we're selling a Yaless Yeezy brand, what does that mean? Do consumers still want it? He seems to be a pretty toxic person right now with regards to commercial enterprise. You're even seeing it with his music. My colleague Frank Pilata has a story up on CNN Business right now that notes that Variety's uh, reporting that you know streams are down nearly 25% in the past week for his music. Airplay is down almost 15%. So, you have to wonder, you know, what does Ye do next? Does he try and rush out a new album and will Spotify and Apple stream it?
0: Hmm. Just say the A word again, Paul. Your way.
3: Yay? No. The, Which A word?
0: The. the <laughs> I can't do it now. I'm Oh, say Adidas.
3: Your way. And, <laughs> I'm sorry, I can't. I can't. I was going to
0: say, do, you have to say it your way. I, you I,
3: say I my see not You I, I, I see where you're going, Julie. Yes. I, Adidas. I can't do Adidas. <laughs> I grew up on Run DMC. They didn't sing (laughs) my Adidas. It's my (laughs) uh, Adidas.
0: That's it for the show. Goodbye, goodbye, goodbye. Connect the World is up next. We'll see you tomorrow.